you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, The Man Who Rebels. It's an exciting topic this morning, but one that we were bound to get to as we go through the book of Genesis. It's a uh, little bit longer passage, and we're going to go through it as we go through the sermon, so let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You, as always, for giving us Your Word and making us Your people. Lord, this morning as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would give us a greater understanding of who we are and what we do. Help us understand why we keep sinning. And help us understand how and why You keep forgiving us. And help us to know You more this morning. And for this, we need Your grace. We always need your grace. Please give us your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the world has never been short of optimists. One such optimist was the science fiction writer H.G. Wells. He genuinely believed (coughs) that with the tools of science in one hand and a blind belief in the goodness of man in the other, It was only a matter of time before the world became a paradise. In fact, he wrote this uh, following statement, H.G. Wells. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That it will achieve unity and peace? That it will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know? going on from strength to strength in ever-widening circles of adventure and achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. He wrote that in 1937. Of course, reality has a terrible knack of uh, checking such optimism because two years later, at the outbreak of World War II, H.G. Wells was singing a different tune. And at that point he wrote, In spite of all my dispositions to a brave-looking optimism, I perceive that the universe is now bored with man and is turning a hard face to him. I see him being carried less and less intelligently and more and more rapidly along the stream of fate to degradation, suffering, and death. The spectacle of evil in this world has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. And so as we look around the world today, which Wells got it right? The pre-World War II optimist or the post-World War II pessimist? I think most people today would say the pessimist view is closer to reality. Not that we're utterly incapable. We've had the most amazing advances Uh, take place in science and travel and medicine. Nonetheless, there does seem to be some kind of built-in self-destructiveness that we just can't shake off. appears every time we attempt to attain God-like status, reaching forward to control our own future, we flail, fail, and fall. I had to practice that several times. And the list of human horrors just continues to grow. Auschwitz, Cambodia, Uganda, Rwanda, Kosovo, 9-11, and Al-Qaeda. 
And you have to stop and ask, where did it all begin to go wrong? And the answer is, in a royal park with the fine-sounding name of Eden. We read all about the calamity in our text for today in Genesis chapter 3, more commonly known as the fall of man. But the fall doesn't start with sin. It actually starts with Adam's introduction to two trees. The last half of Genesis uh, 2, verse 9, introduces this. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these are rather important trees because the first thing we see about them is God's command. God's command, chapter 2, starting at verse 15. See, these two trees stood side by side in the very center of the garden. And it's through these two trees the destiny of man would be decided. Life was at the center of the garden, and eating fruit from the tree of life would result in continued life. And after the fall, if you remember, or if you know, because we haven't gotten there yet, uh, but in Genesis 3, verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. But the tree of life doesn't go away. As we saw when we went through the book of Revelation, at the last day the tree will reappear. In Revelation, uh, we're told in Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the tree of life gives life and grows in eternity. And Adam was not tempted to take from the tree of life because he had life. Adam's responsibility in the garden is made clear by the command of God himself. Verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And God's first word to him was permissive. He said, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Adam was able to partake of everything in the garden to his heart's content, which included the tree of life. This is a lavish, extravagant abundance and Adam could take from the tree of life if he wanted to. Everything was there for him, everything that he could possibly want. But God's permission is also paired with his prohibition. It goes on and says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. To disobey and eat from this tree would bring sure death. So what was the temptation for Adam in light of the every tree abundance of the garden and the surely die threat of the forbidden tree? And I think it was simply this. The temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to God and without reference to the Word of God, without reference to the will of God. It's an act of moral autonomy. That is, deciding what's right without reference to God's revealed will. Adam and Eve desired wisdom, and they sought it outside of the will of God. And they usurped God's role in determining what's right and wrong. 
So here we get to the very heart of original sin. It's to sidestep God and his word and his will in order to become wise. And in contrast, Jesus, the second Adam, lived by the word of God. We saw that, the temptation, Matthew 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus lived every second of his life in radical dependence on God's word. He believed the word of God. But the first Adam decided to willfully disregard God's revealed will and seek wisdom on his own. And Adam did obtain the knowledge of good and evil, but it killed him because he got his wisdom his way. And so it is with us. What we do with the word of God is everything. I mean, imagine for a moment that you don't know how this is going to end. Adam has the whole garden before him. He could have taken the tree from the tree of life and all that it promised, but he decided to seek wisdom from the tree of knowledge, apart from God's word, and in doing so he died. And that's a great temptation for all of us today to establish our wisdom apart from God's word. But if we do that, then what happened to Adam happens to us. We fall. So let's turn to Genesis 3, which opens with man's descent. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, man's descent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So as we come to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst the crystal waters, green forests of Eden, and companionship with each other and with the animals God had placed in the garden. And this magnificent couple shared the same bones and the same flesh. She was at once his daughter. She came out of him, his sister. They had the same creator father and his one flesh wife. And their relationship reflected the intimacy and order of the Trinity and foreshadowed the intimacy and order of Christ and his bride, the church. And Adam's authority in the order of the husband and wife relationship was part of creation before sin, before the fall, enters the picture. This is evident. Adam was created first, a fact the Apostle Paul makes central in his argument for maintaining the creation order in 1 Timothy 2, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Second, Eve was taken out of man, which Paul likewise notes, similar argument in 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Three, Eve was designated Adam's helper in Genesis 2.18, where this couldn't be said of Adam. And four, the authority structure of Genesis 2 and 3 rests on the careful order of God, man, woman, and the animal. 
This, of course, is tragically reversed by the fall. As Ken Matthew points out, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, no one listens to God. And this reversing of authority is going to be addressed immediately after the fall, which we'll get to next week, God's successive judgments on the serpent, the woman, and the man. But now before the fall, Adam and Eve have listened only to God. And the sinless pair are riding this pinnacle of innocence and openness. Genesis 2.25, which Dave opened to us last week, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They're spiritually naked before God. God came first in their love and in their thoughts. And according to C.S. Lewis, he says, and that without painful effort. There's no need for the discipline of daily devotions. All of life was devotion. Loving God was as natural as breathing. And domestically, they're naked with each other. Clothing had never occurred to them. There's nothing to hide or protect. The gravitational pull of selfishness didn't yet exist. Neither one was the center of his or her own life. God and each other were their centers. All that they were was simply there for the other to see and love. Adam was placed, or Eve was placed in Adam's constant soul, as it says in the Merchant of Venice. And he and hers. And they were both naked in their environment, at home with the garden and its inhabitants. And here at the pinnacle in Genesis, we should note that Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.7 form a unit. Because both uh, ends focus on the couple's nakedness, but in radical contrast. In Genesis 2.25, it pictures Adam and Eve at the pinnacle of innocence. And then in Genesis 3.7, describes them in the pit of guilt. And this section describes the first couple's descent from innocence to guilt. And it's real history, but it's primal history. What it describes has happened countless times throughout the ages. These verses describe the dialogue that leads to the descent of Adam and Eve into the pit. And the surprise here is that the initiator of the dialogue is a talking snake. I don't like snakes. Some of you know that. And more, it's not a bad snake, everything that God created he called good. Neither it is a good snake gone bad. Sin had made no entrance into the world at this point. Rather, the New Testament identifies this serpent as the devil. Referring back to this scene in paradise in Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And the snake's designation here in Genesis was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. It suggests it's not a common part of the garden's population. It may explain why Eve wasn't put off by its talking. You know, did it hiss or lisp its words? Or did it speak with a voice like Eve's husband? We don't know. But we do know that through its voice, Satan attacked God's word. And that's the first thing we see here. God's word attacked. We have to remember that God's word is responsible for everything that Eve enjoyed. Day and night, sun and moon, the blue sky, the exotic garden, the flowers, singing birds, the adoring creatures, her Adam, all came from God's good word, which Satan now attacks. And it would seem that Satan's attack wouldn't have a chance, but appearances can be deceiving. 
The serpent opens the dialogue with a surprised tone. Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is subtle. He didn't directly deny God's word, but he introduced the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Such a thought had never been verbalized before. And Satan's incredulous tone sort of sets up his distortion of God's word. Whereas back in Genesis 2.16, the Lord God had generously uh, told them, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Satan now asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a complete distortion and travesty of God's word. God's generosity is being twisted by Satan's question to suggest that God is stingy instead. And his approach is so subtle that Eve didn't even suspect that God's word's being attacked. But a seed of doubt about God's word is planted in Eve's heart that would bear immediate fruit. The snake's distorted question provided Eve with this memorable chance to set the record straight. But our first mother failed. Instead, she descended to her own revisions of God's word in three sad instances in which she diminished God's word. And that's what we see next, God's word diminished. God had said in in Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But now Eve leaves out the word every, simply saying we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She minimizes the provision of God. She discounts his generosity. Something bad is happening in her heart. And her subtle shift in her heart is further revealed in her addition to God's word. Verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God never said, Neither shall you touch it. Eve magnifies God's strictness you know, to just touch the tree and you're dead. Her comments suggest that God is so harsh that even an inadvertent slip would bring death. And lastly, she diminishes God's word by saying, lest you die. And she left out another word, the word surely. The certainty of death is removed. So in the extended sentence that makes up verses 2 and 3, Eve diminishes God's word. Her revisions uh, to the word of God actually put her in harm's way. And that opens the door further for the snake. So we see next that God's word is challenged. God's word challenged and encourages the snake's blasphemous contradiction in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is an in-your-face rejection of God's word. It's the serpent's word versus God's word. Note, too, that the doctrine of divine judgment is the first doctrine to be denied. Satan attacks it from the beginning. And modern culture's loathing for this doctrine comes from the fact that this is Satan's world. Nevertheless, divine judgment has fallen and will fall as surely as it did for Adam and Eve. And the pathology of this dialogue of dissent is so clear, Satan offers a question based on a perversion of God's word. Eve begins to question it herself as evidenced by her revisions of God's word, and then Satan is free to declare God's word is wrong. And Eve should have recoiled in horror and run naked, screaming through the garden to Adam. And Adam should have stepped forth to uphold the word of God. 
But that didn't happen. And Eve is slowly buying in. And she remains entranced before the serpent, flushed with excitement, anticipation consumes her, and it opens the door to sin even further. Because not only do we see God's word attacked, now we see God's goodness attacked. Encouraged by Eve's revision, Satan goes after God himself, attacking his goodness. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Cast God in an ugly light. According to the serpent, the threat of death is nothing more than a scare tactic to keep Adam and Eve in their place. God's repressive. He's obviously jealous that they might ascend to his level. It's an incredible attack in light of everything that has gone before up to now. All of the creation, all the marvelous things that God has done, all those sayings, and it was good. Not to mention the gift of each other and their dominion of the earth as well, all of which comes from God. It's nothing less than a blatant slur on God's character. But Eve is buying in. And it's going to alter life forever. The lie bore the lure of divinity. You will be like God. Sin has an intrinsic spiritual lure. It seems to hold a promise. And if you're in bondage to sin, you will see God's prohibitions merely as barriers to be overcome. If Eve would just stretch forth her lovely hand and take the fruit, divinity would be hers. It also holds out the lure of moral autonomy. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. By taking the fruit, she would become wise. Equal with God, she would decide what's right and wrong. And how intoxicating is that? She gets to make the rules. She would get to do it her way. That promise still intoxicates us. We all want control. And so during this dialogue of dissent, Satan attacked God's word and then God's goodness. And Eve stood still for it. It was deception of the highest magnitude. And as we know, deception leads to the fall. The serpent now departs from our view. Eve is alone. Moses provides a brilliant picture of Eve's, Eve's descent in verse 6, in which there's no dialogue, but just Eve's thoughts. She saw that the tree was good for food, physically appealing. It's a delight to the eyes. It's aesthetically appealing. It's desired to make one wise. A great enticement. Wisdom apart from God's word. And this prospect of God-like wisdom drew her in. And God's command at this point seems insubstantial. She couldn't see any good reason not to eat. So she took of its fruit and ate. Moses expresses no shock. This is one of the defining moments of the scriptures. The Dutch theologian Gerhard von Rad says, on the contrary, the unthinkable and terrible is described as simply and unsensationally as possible. From the human perspective, it's just also natural and undramatic. But in reality, it's cosmic and eternal. With Eve's sin, the narrative quickens. There's a rapid sequence of verbs in verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that's the shocker. Adam was apparently right there, listening to the conversation between Eve and the snake. The text says that he was with her. We also know this because during the whole temptation in verses 1 through 5, Satan addresses Eve with you, plural, which implies Adam's presence. Adam passively watched 
everything. And Adam was not deceived by the snake. Adam was not deceived by the snake. He had his powers of discernment honed by the naming of the animals, a fairly rigorous intellectual process that probed the essence of each animal. He's not this ignorant country boy, as we'd like to imagine. St. Augustine said his mental powers surpassed those of the most brilliant philosopher as much as the speed of a bird surpasses the tortoise. John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, insisted that Adam had insight into the mysteries of the soul. The Apostle Paul was insistent. First Timothy 2, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What does that mean? It means that Adam sinned willfully. You must understand this. Adam was not tricked. He was not deceived. He sinned willfully, eyes wide open, without hesitation. His sin, uh, his, his self was filled with sinful self-interest. He had watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. And he sinned willfully, assuming there'd be no consequences. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. No one followed God. But understand this, because it's really important. Adam wasn't tricked. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. And Adam chose to disobey God. And look what immediately happens. That carefree nakedness that went with their transparent character and their harmony with God and with each other just dissolves. Verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Both Adam and Eve, in fact, died right there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, while the taste of the fruit is still on their lips. One commentator explains, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. To die doesn't mean to cease, but in biblical terms, it means to cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence but nevertheless in existence. And since dying is still existing, Adam's and Eve, Adam and Eve's existence is now one of death. And not only that, sin immediately penetrates uh, every sphere of their being like a drop of dye in a pail of water. They were at once utterly sinful. The Apostle Paul is probably thinking of Genesis 2, where it says, you shall surely die, when he wrote in Romans 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Paul's assertion that all sin describes an action completed in the past. We all sinned in Adam when Adam sinned. Because of this, we died. As we also see in Paul's words in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We entered the world dead and depraved since sin colors every part of our existence so that we hide from God rather than seek him. And that's why the next thing we see is when God confronts man. God confronts man, starting at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And in an instant, the original couple passed from life to death, from sinlessness to sin, from harmony to alienation, from trust to distrust. And it didn't take a day. It happens in a second. Adam and Eve, as our first parents, are genetically, historically, theologically, every man and every woman. They're the paradigm for us all. Not only in their original sin, but because the way they attempted to deal with their sin is the pattern that we attempt to deal with ours today. And the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve is the way he deals with us. So there the first couple were in their ridiculous fig leaves, slouching around paradise lost, and God confronts them. And I actually think he's gracious and gentle and remedial. But in their confrontation, we see our confrontation. First thing we see is God seeks them. Although God is everywhere present in creation, the Garden of Eden is a special place of God's presence on earth, much like the tabernacle and the temple would be later on. Eden contained the garden of God's presence, and the Garden of Eden was prophetic of and ultimately fulfilled in the new garden where God dwells, as we see at the end of the book of Revelation. But because God's present in the garden, we can't imagine the opening line, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, indicates that God all of a sudden just showed up. He's already there. It's his earthly palace, his garden temple. And what the couple heard is the rustle of God's step. It's a sacred sound they had heard before and would have filled them with joy, except now it brings dread. And so we see God coming to them, seeking them. But what do they do? They hide. Man hides. Continuing at verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. At the sound of God's approach, they somehow sense that their fig leaves aren't enough. Then or today, imagine, it's possible to hide from God. We all know this. When we disobey, we naturally succumb to being Jonah and his folly. It says Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. And unbelief spawns the delusion that we can be where God is not. And what's worse, we think we can privatize our thoughts denying uh, what it says in Psalm 139, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Sin brings a pathology of hiding. And even as Christians, we can become mastered by this, we can hide from God syndrome. So God sought them, they hid, and God finds them. Picking up at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God's where are you is sort of remedial, like a father's question to a naughty child who's hiding behind the door so he doesn't have to look at his face. The where are you asks, Why are you there? Is that where you should be? Come on out. And Adam realizing that God had found him, rose from his hiding place, shamefaced, wearing his ridiculous fig leaves, and mumbling his reply. And as the wife uh, creeps out slowly after him, God, you realize God drew Adam from hiding rather than drove him from it. 
The initial question is an indictment, like where are you hiding? But simply, where are you? There's no hint of accusation. He nudges Adam to come to his senses. I think the whole process is one of grace. But now that Adam is standing in front of God, there's no admission of wrongdoing. He only says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's apparent at that moment he's more aware of his nakedness and shame than of his sin against God. Adam has undergone a profound change, but all he could do is express his fear and shame. The only thing that Adam confesses to is being afraid. Of course, he knew he'd broken God's command, but in his new uh, self-focused state, he's more concerned about how he felt than about his sin. And the self-focus and shrinking from God remains part and parcel of our fallen condition. Fear and shame and hiding are the incurable results of the fall. And we only begin to deal with them when God says, where are you? But even then we see more sin because next becomes man's excuse. As we'll see next week, God addressed the man, then the woman, the snake, and the order of responsibility. Adam bore the primary responsibility. But having begun gently, God presses the issue. He asks two questions. Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Was it the serpent? Was it the woman? Did you look in a, in a pool and see your reflection? Someone or something told him he was naked. And then came the second question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now Adam passes the buck. Verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. These are the words of a man who is spiritually dead. This is wicked. Remember Adam's ecstasy we saw last week when he first laid eyes on Eve? Genesis 2.23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, man is ish, woman is isha. But I don't think he just said that. I think when the woman was given to him, he said, look, it's another ish. Wait, that's no ish. That's an ish. Ah. That makes way more sense. And you realize those are the first human words recorded in Scripture. And it's the initial poetry of man. As I said, she was at once his sister, his daughter, and his one flesh wife. Such a helper, such intimacy, such oneness, such joy. She was his human universe. But now... She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault, God, don't blame me. And Adam is being so calculated and cold. But the blame doesn't stop with Eve because Adam also accuses God. The woman whom you gave to be with me. God, you put this dangerous creature at my side. I'm not guilty, you are. It's your fault. And in doing this, Adam is like Satan, who had argued that a better God would not withhold anything from his people. And here Adam implies that a better God wouldn't have given him Eve. It's implicit blasphemy. Eve's excuse followed the pattern of Adam's, the serpent deceived me and I ate, but her excuse isn't as nearly as reprehensible as Adam. She doesn't say it's this man that you gave me, and she doesn't insinuate that it's God's fault. But still, she doesn't accept the blame. And at this point, neither Adam or Eve show any sign of contrition. 
Adam and Eve have fallen from the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy into the pit of guilt and division. And what Satan told them was half true. They didn't die that day as they thought they would. Indeed, Adam lived something like 930 more years. And yet they did die. And their constant communion with God underwent death. And they would go to earthly graves and they would need a savior. Their eyes were open. They got the knowledge they sought, but they got it the wrong way. And they saw evil and they saw themselves and they realized they were naked and they desperately sought to cover themselves and their innocence evaporated. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. And now they would have to labor to love God and to love each other. And the New Testament encourages us not to be unaware of Satan's scheme. And Genesis is packed with primary wisdom in this regard. From Adam and Eve's sin, we learn that sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and when we begin to doubt God's goodness. If you do those things, you're opening the door to sin. So what are we as sons and daughters of Adam to do since we share such solidarity with him in our sins that we are thoroughly sinful and utterly responsible and fully blamable? What's the answer? May I suggest that in a sense, we are to blame Jesus. We are to blame Jesus, or more accurately, we are to put or rest all of our blame on Jesus. How so? Paul explains, Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, the first Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Our second Adam was the one man in history who never tried to pass the buck. Because as a sinless man, he never needed to pass on the responsibility for sin. Rather, as our sinless Savior, he said, pass the blame to me. And the message of the Bible is, the buck stopped with Jesus. The buck stopped with Jesus. Wise people will listen well. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I will close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so quick to pass the buck and to pass the blame and to pretend we didn't do it. And we're so slow to confess our sin and to seek your forgiveness. As the Apostle Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, grant that we would know you better through Genesis, which is your word, and that we would believe it and live by it, and it would force us, move us, show us our need for Christ, and that we would turn to him. We ask that you would do this in each one of us, I pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.